Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains references to child death, the internment of Japanese people in World War II and wartime atrocities. It also contains some coarse language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm Nicola, a trainee history teacher with an interest in the history of masculinity and war and a belief in making history accessible. And I'm Hannah, an almost historian studying activist women in the 1950s and 60s and perpetually mad that the women of history are often consigned to the token week on gender. Welcome to Women of War, a new podcast where each episode we're going to take a long look at women throughout history and how they've been involved in the traditionally male-focused field of war. I mean, because war is men, right? Like, that's the image we have. Men Mm. on the battlefield fighting the good fight while their wives and mothers stay home, pining for them while occasionally waving a white handkerchief. When will my husband come home from the war? You'd make an excellent Russian peasant woman. Okay, I was going for the Ukraine then. I have to work on that. Yeah, okay, yeah, you need to work on that. When we started talking about this podcast, I googled to see if there was already something out there on women and war. I was like, surely there had to be. But all I could find were either podcasts on the impact modern conflicts have on women or historical podcasts on war with one or two episodes on women, as if women's lived experiences and stories can be condensed into a broad narrative of women and war. That's where we come in. In this podcast, we try to show that women throughout history have had unique and constantly changing experiences in wartime. While for most of history and even today, men represent the majority of people fighting on the front lines, women have been involved in a variety of ways, from fighters to spies to nurses to sex workers to revolutionaries. Since war is also a catch-all term, we've had to decide what counts as a war for this podcast. Now, I'm pretty sure you could actually have a whole podcast trying to define war, but for now we count any armed conflict between two major groups, such as wars between countries or civil wars between different factions. We're also including what we call frontier wars here as well to include wars waged by colonial powers against indigenous populations of the places they appropriated, such as the Dutch against their colonies. The people need to know about the Dutch! Sure, Jan. Today, we're going to discuss another woman who was tarred by the propaganda brush after her actions in World War II Japan. Aiva Ikuko Toguri Dekino, also known as Orphan Anne and misidentified as Tokyo Rose. Iva was an American broadcaster who participated in English-language radio programs from Radio Tokyo, targeted at Allied soldiers in the Pacific. So question, have you ever heard of Tokyo Rose? Because I hadn't until she was a question in Trivial Pursuit. I hadn't, but my dad had, and he was also like, yeah, like Lord Haw Haw, which was confusing in itself, so I had to Google him. Uh, interestingly, the only thing he knew in detail about Matahari was there was a Matahari pinball machine in the London Tavern in Richmond in the 1980s. Is there a Tokyo Rose pinball machine? I mean, I haven't played every single pinball machine in the world because the only pinball I've played is the one on the computer, but I don't think <laughs> so. But like Matahari, though, Tokyo Rose was a highly mythologised character from World War II. Though Iva would be identified as Rose, there was never a single Tokyo Rose figure. Rather, Tokyo Rose was the name given to English-speaking female broadcasters on Japanese radio, who often introduced the music of a program. Many US servicemen developed a bit of a crush on the American voices they heard on the radio and created an image of an alluring siren voice Tokyo Rose. And this figure was then co-opted by the media and the government into a femme fatale style propagandist who used her feminine wiles to undermine US morale. By the end of the war, nearly every American soldier in the Pacific had heard of Tokyo Rose. The American public, convinced in their pre-existing racial prejudices towards the Japanese by the war, were eager to take down a supposed enemy of the US, while politicians and public figures were wary of stepping in, lest they be seen as sympathetic to traitors. And if you're not familiar with American politics post-World War II, this was the beginning of the Cold War, when every Tom, Dick and Harry was wary that every other Tom, Dick and Harry were communist spies intent on bringing down American democracy from within. Wait, is American democracy and also... (laughs) Is American democracy also an oxymoron? We can't talk, we're Australians. 
hey, we've had the same Prime Minister for two whole years now, and we get democracy sausages on election day. That is democracy manifest. And you, sir, are you waiting to receive my... Anyway, so Iva got caught in the middle of these Cold War politics and her prosecution became almost a test of the government's response to apparent traitors. There was a trial, a conviction, a presidential pardon and a whole lot of drama along the way. So strap in, folks, this one gets wild. Akiko Taguri was born, somewhat ironically, on the 4th of July 1916 in Los Angeles. Her father... Jun Taguri emigrated to the U.S. from Japan in 1899. Her mother, Fumi Imuro, emigrated in 1913, and they eventually ended up in California. Iva was the second eldest daughter of four siblings, and the first to be born in America. Her family was close and settled comfortably into American life, going to church and mostly speaking English at home. Jun apparently didn't want to engage much with the Japanese-American community, and so he tried to restrict the family's connections with other Japanese people living near them. So Iva grew up basically disconnected from the Japanese diaspora. Iva went to grammar schools in Calexico and San Diego. Apparently she was a very popular girl at school. Fitting with her auspicious birth date, she was a Girl Scout during her time at school and was into, quote, sports, hiking and swing music, unquote. A real American gal. She even had a crush on Jimmy Stewart, which I guess is like having a crush on Justin Bieber today. And I don't think he's relevant to teenage girls anymore. I don't fucking know. You get the idea. We're too old now. Okay, so it was while she was at school that she began calling herself Iva. I couldn't find anything to explain like why she started going by Iva, but I'm going to assume it was probably to anglicise her name to avoid racist jerks. Well, it could have been. It could have been she wanted to fit in more, not presumably just because of racism, but she might have just wanted to have a more American name. But racism rife. So I mean, like, yeah, that does make sense because her father's going for like, let's be real Americans. So maybe it was a family decision. Mm. Um, but anyway, we're going to call her. We're going to call her Iva in this episode because that's what she was known for as most of her life. So she finished her education in LA before studying zoology at the University of California, which she graduated from in 1940. I just, I'm, I'm confused by the zoology degree because it feels like, all I think of, of zoology is just like tigers and you're going to work in a zoo, but I feel like it's more than that, but I don't know enough about it. It's like animal husbandry and stuff. I guess like I know it never ever came up in her life, so it just weirds me out to think that's what she studied, but obviously Here's she's Here's my theory, right? Do you want my theory? Always. So, so, like, Los Angeles is where Hollywood is, right? Yeah. So maybe there's lots of exotic animals there because they need them for movies, and that's why she wanted to study zoology. I mean, that makes sense, actually. There's lots of bad animal care going on, too, in Hollywood in the early, like, 1930s and 40s. Are there any, are there any famous zoos in Los Angeles? Let me just Google this. There's the LA Zoo. Yeah, that's... Maybe she went no, there No, that was founded in 1966. Oh, okay. She didn't go there as a kid then. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, so. What does this have to do with Hitler? Well, All right. nothing, actually. But it was pretty rare for Japanese-American women at this time to go to college. Um, only about 6% of Japanese-American women did. But Iva's mother had wanted to be a doctor when she was younger, and she passed her ambition on to her daughter. So for a few months after her graduation, uh, Iva worked as a research assistant. So it seems like finding a good job after your degree in the 40s was just as easy as it is now. (laughs) While this was happening, the world was also having a swell time dealing with the Second World War. The Americans obviously weren't involved at this point, but the rest of the Allied world was fighting Nazis or being scared of communists. Isn't this 1940, not 2020? Who invited you? I mean, no one. I just kind of showed up when it became relevant to my interests. Okay. So kind of like the Americans in 1941. Segway! Before 1941, many Americans had been vehemently opposed to US involvement in a war they saw as a European conflict, though they did financially support Britain and the Soviet Union. Some Americans also thought the Nazis had the right idea, but I'm so glad the Yanks have stopped believing that. So that changed dramatically on December 7th, 1941 when 353 Japanese aircraft attacked the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Japan believed this action would convince the U.S. not to engage with the Allied war effort by knocking out the U.S. naval forces. But in a shocking twist to no one, 
the US officially joined the war in the Pacific on the side of the Allies the next day. So in hindsight, Ivor's decision to travel to Japan in July 1941 was not the best. Really not. She sailed for Japan on the 5th of July from California. Choo-choo! In another ill-fated decision, Ivor did not have a US passport when she sailed, but I'm sure that won't be a problem later on. So the reasons her trip for her trip to Japan are a bit disputed. So Ivor claimed she was visiting a sick aunt, but in another explanation from the pos- prosecutor at her trial, she travelled to Japan to study medicine, uh, which seems to be purely based around the fact that Ivor had 30 pieces of luggage with her, which he decided was excessive. At the beginning of the war in the Pacific, Ivor lived with her relatives. She immediately felt like an outsider in Japan, even though her family welcomed her wholeheartedly. She didn't speak the language very well, wasn't used to the food, and didn't know many of the customs. And she desperately missed bread. Same. At this point, contacting her family back in the US became increasingly difficult, and Ivor found her parents were not receiving her letters. Around this time, the US government froze Japanese assets in the US, her father and her father and siblings were taken from a temporary internment camp to the Jaila River Relocation Centre in Arizona, one of the infamous Japanese internment camps. Her mum died while at the temporary camp due to the disgusting conditions. But Ivor didn't know about any of this till after the war, but she knew she needed to go home. Around August 1941, Ivor applied to the US Vice Consul in Japan for a passport, stating that she wanted to return to the US to live permanently. But... Because she left the US without a passport, her application was sent all the way to the State Department for consideration so they could verify her identity. So with the speed of bureaucracies, this would have taken a few months, right? A few months from August to September 1941 would, if I've done the maths correctly, make the application still under consideration in December 1941. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Pearl Harbor happened. The US and Japan declared war on each other, and the Japanese-American Ivor found herself without a US passport in Japan when the State Department refused to certify her US citizenship. So nothing can go wrong at this point. So then things went wrong. Like the other 10,000 Americans living in Japanese territory when the US declared war, Ivor was strongly encouraged to renounce her US citizenship. We'll just gloss over the fact she was only still in Japan at this point because she didn't have official US citizenship. It's war, things are a bit chaotic, paperwork isn't at the top of everyone's list to do. Ivor refused to announce her country and was subsequently declared an enemy alien by the Japanese government. This meant she was the subject of close monitoring and had trouble getting a job. Seems a bit of an irrational response. Once war broke out, it was even harder for Ivor. She was unable to return to the US without official documentation, which she couldn't get without official documentation. Logic. Her family in Japan tried to support her, but they were also increasingly worried about having an enemy alien under their roof. The Japanese authorities also had an alien? Surprise, shock, twist. She takes off her mask and she's from Mars. The Japanese authorities also hadn't given up on Ivor renouncing her US citizenship. And a police officer came to her aunt and uncle's house every second day to persuade her to change her mind and become a Japanese citizen. Ivor was so fed up by this that at one point she angrily replied, I want to be interred as a foreigner. But in Japanese. The police officer replied, but in Japanese. Oh no, maybe American. No, she didn't speak Japanese. American. American, I think. Well, I assume she would have learnt Japanese. She probably would have learnt Japanese. Oh, Christ. This is a this is a trained wreck. So she says, "I want, I want to be interned as a foreigner, in either a English language. or Japanese." Then what does the police uh, officer say? The police say? officer replied that since she had Japanese ancestry, he wouldn't inter her yet. And also, he was like, "You're a woman, and everyone knows women aren't dangerous." That's the whole point of this podcast to prove how not dangerous women can be. Exactly. By 1942, she was sick of the suspicion, which very fair, um, of her neighbours and the military police and moved to Tokyo. As an enemy alien, she was refused a ration card and she was also fast running out of money. In early June, she moved into a boarding house and found employment in the monitoring division of the Dumai News Agency, where she was tasked with listening to news broadcasts from the Allied countries and reporting back information on Allied army movements. In August 1942, Ivor heard from the neutral Swiss consulate that there would be a repatriation ship leaving Japan for the US in September. 
Unfortunately, part of the voyage would cost over $400 USD, nearly $7,000 USD today, and she couldn't afford it. It was also around this time that the police upped their surveillance of Iva and intensified their efforts to get her to renounce her US citizenship. So one day she came home from work to find three men in her room, going through her belongings, purportedly looking for English language materials, but most likely also attempting to intimidate Iva into becoming a Japanese citizen. She continued to refuse despite the heightened harassment and, like, honestly respect. I like to think I would have held out, but I probably would have given in pretty easily. Well, I'm not particularly attached to my American citizenship, so I wouldn't have been bothered to keep it. I mean, that could be because you're Australian. No, I don't think that's it. So there was a bright spot in all this uncertainty. Wallet Domain News Agency. Is it Domai or Domai? Oh, well, sorry, Japanese people. Domai? Well, Domai. Domai. Our Australian accents are going to butcher many things in these episodes. Oh, God. Wallet Domai. Fuck. Wallet Channel 10. Ivor met Philippe Diakino, (laughs) a Portuguese (laughs) Japanese man who was. Who was not Channel 10. Wallet Channel 10. Domai News Agency. Domain. While at Domain. Okay. While at Domain News Agency, a subsidiary of Channel 10, Iva met Philippe Diakino, a Portuguese Japanese man who was, as photos confirm, hot. He was also a gentle, calming soul. He's exactly the kind of guy you'd fall for in wartime. They became friends, and Philippe was the only other person working in news monitoring at the agency with openly pro American views like Iva. Philippe was one of the only people that Iva could speak to freely while in Tokyo without worrying he would report her to the police. An interesting upshot of Iva's monitoring work was that she heard the news of the war from non-Japanese sources and so she could build a more rounded picture of the situation than if she had been confined to pro-Japanese media like most people living in Japan. So Iva and Philippe were aware of the undercurrents of the war and they began to notice when Japan was losing its initial good fortune despite the fact the Japanese media only reported on apparent Japanese victories. <laughs> Kumi, are we the baddies? <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, the monitoring job was only part-time and Iva needed more money. The situation became more desperate in June 1943 when she was hospitalised for malnutrition, remember that refusal for a ration card, and to pay her medical debts she had to borrow money from Philippe and her landlady. She didn't like being in debt, and so when an opportunity to take on another job at Radio Tokyo as a typist came along in August 1943, Iva jumped at the chance. So for some context, radio was increasingly the main vehicle for Japanese propaganda, but they actually weren't very successful at first. The early propaganda broadcasts relied too heavily on Japanese patriotism and could only announce news that was sanctioned by the Imperial General Headquarters. As Japan suffered more and more defeats, the official news was often more fantasy than reality, and hearing of a Japanese defeat presented as a victory did little to damage Allied morale. The biggest issue with the early radio broadcasts, however, was the personalities of the presenters, most of whom had never done radio work before and whose air presence was lacking. To solve this dilemma, dilemma, to solve this dilemma, the army came up with the idea of recruiting prisoners of war with radio experience to broadcast their propaganda scripts. So while working at Radio Tokyo, Ivor met three of these, including an Australian POW, Major Charles Cousins, who had been forced to broadcast propaganda by the Japanese Imperial Army on the radio show, The Zero Hour. Though initially wary of her, Cousins and Ivor became friends once she began bringing him real news of the war that she had heard at her job at Channel 10, and she would smuggle food, medicine, and other supplies to him and his fellow pals living at Bunker Camp. You're a historian. Pals, POWs. You're a historian. I'm a historian. The Zero Hour was based on monitored US radio broadcasts and spread news of disasters in America to US soldiers in the Pacific to demoralise them. The show used music to snag the interest of the soldiers before the POWs could read the news. Cousins and co. were using their airtime to subvert Japanese propaganda. Good guys. They were in the perfect position to sabotage the program as they were in charge of the scripts and also how they chose to deliver the news. They wanted, rather than propaganda, they wanted to make the program entertaining and to cheer up their listeners. So they often downplayed the propaganda messages they were forced to include and used a joking tone of voice to read difficult news items to downplay the impact. (laughs) Everyone's died. Probably better than that. (laughs) In November 1943, the Japanese propaganda bosses decided to expand the program and add new voices to it. 
Cousins was concerned as the POWs had built up a program that was useless to the Japanese. A plus. Thank you. And was worried that changing it could make the zero hour into the propaganda machine the army wanted. So Cousins had the idea of bringing in a woman with an unusual voice. Cousins chose Iva because her voice was very rough, the exact opposite of the ultra-feminine, seductive voice that the Japanese army had wanted when including a woman on the program. In mid-November, Iva was ordered to report to the recording studio. She was concerned about her lack of experience in radio and wary of promulgating propaganda for the Japanese, but Cousins assured her that she would not be required to say anything that was anti-American. But, like, did she say anything anti-American on air? Oh, well, that would be telling. Iva began broadcasting in November 1943, adopting the persona of Anne, or Orphan Anne. And by all accounts, she was really good at undermining Japanese propaganda she was supposed to be spouting, but like in a really subtle way, so Japanese officials wouldn't pick up on it. I mean, I, I really don't know how you wouldn't pick up on it. Here's a quote from the type of mockery she later claimed to have read. This is your number one enemy, your favourite playmate, Orphan Anne on Radio Tokyo, the little sunbeam whose throat you'd like to cut. Get ready for a vicious assault on your morale. 75 minutes of music and news for our friends, I mean our enemies, in the South Pacific. I feel like we would have got on. Yeah, same. I I feel like we would have. Um, We're just going to play a clip from Zero Hour here because we actually have one, which is really exciting. Hello, you fighting orphans of the Pacific. How strict. This is after her weekend, Annie, back on the air strictly under human hours. Reception okay? Well, it better be because this is all request night. But I've got a pretty nice program for my favorite little family, the wandering boneheads of the Pacific Islands. The first request is made by none other than the boss. And guess what? He wants Bonnie Baker. And my resistance is low. My, what taste you have, sir, she said. Despite their mandate for propaganda, it seems that Cousins and Ivers' undermining was successful. So a survey from 1968 of around 100 men who remembered listening to the Zero Hour while serving in the Pacific, 89% of them realised it was supposed to be propaganda, 84% listened to the program because they found it entertaining, and it was less than 10% were actually who actually admitted to being demoralised by it. I don't know much about the study, um, and there were probably obviously issues with perhaps the possible stigma of admitting to being demoralised, but I still think these stats kind of indicate that the program did not have the impact the Japanese government wanted. Ivan never actually called herself Tokyo Rose on air, and the name was given by the US media to various English-speaking women during the period who participated in promulgating propaganda programs from as early as 1943. Lovely alliteration. Thank you. So no one really knows when or how the name first came to be used, but it was in popular parlance by 1943 and Rose was cemented as a figure of Japanese propaganda by 1944. The mythical Tokyo Rose grew in popularity among US soldiers who were in a state of constant tension waiting for battle and they had little avenues of entertainment. So, in other words, they were horny as hell and a sexy lady on the radio was a welcome break from the hell of war. And because humans are humans that no one knew what she looked like only added to her appeal, and soldiers could turn her into whatever they wanted in their minds. The figure of Tokyo Rose became mythologised as an exotic, alluring temptress who would demoralise the US war effort at home and abroad and seduce American soldiers into leaving the war or killing themselves with her sexy, (laughs) sexy voice, a bit like me. She was even called the Mata Hari of the radio by the San Francisco Chronicle in 1949. There was a healthy dose of racism in how she was viewed, with some oriental exoticism thrown in, together with wartime perceptions of Japanese people as conniving and vicious. So Tokyo Rose actually became a bit of a pop culture figure, and she was even featured in newspaper comic pages published in 1945 when she met Superman and informed him that scientists in Japan were creating a Japanese Superman that would best the American hero. I just, I love this. It's great. At the end of the war, the US Navy even honoured Tokyo Rose for raising morale with her program, reminding sailors of what they were fighting for and bringing news from home. This was meant to be satire, but the fact is many US soldiers would have agreed with this assessment. There is a little more good news. Philippe and Iva had grown increasingly closer over the past few years and decided to get married. Iva converted to Catholicism for Philippe, nobody's perfect, and they married on April 18th, 1945, 
Only a small allied bombing raid interrupting their ceremony. Free fireworks. No. Ivor wanted to quit her job at the radio station by this point, but it wasn't so easy. She tried simply not turning up for work, but a man turned up to her house saying she had orders from above to report to work the next day. I feel like you could still not go, but it's probably code for we will murder you. Ivor continued broadcasting on the Zero Hour until the end of the Pacific War, when Japan surrendered after the US atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For Ivor and Philippe, however, it was the day they'd been waiting for. After the war, they wanted to return to the US to settle down, but unfortunately they were hella broke and they couldn't afford the passage back. Luckily, some friendly American journalists turned up looking for the infamous Tokyo Rose. As the American forces entered Japan in August 1945, war correspondents on the ground were desperate to get the sensational scoop that would put their newspaper ahead of the rest. In the first days after the war ended, there were over 200 journalists in Japan looking for the biggest stories they could get. These journalists were after three main stories. One, eyewitness reports of the bombed-out Tokyo. Two, interviews with the man who had led the government at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack, General Hideki Tojo. I'm so sorry, Japan. And three, to find the mysterious Tokyo Rose. On August 30, several armed reporters stormed the offices of the Japanese Broadcasting Corporation, demanding that they get an interview with Tokyo Rose. The few staff who were at the station claimed they had no idea who Tokyo Rose was. Two reporters, Clark Lee and Harry Brundage, were keen to find Rose and asked an old acquaintance if he knew who she was. The acquaintance, Leslie Nakashima, asked around and eventually gave Ivor's name as someone who had worked on Zero Hour. I wanted to like really like like Woodward and Bernstein, <laughs> Lee and Brundage. So Lee and Brundage told Nakashima to offer Ivor two thousand dollars USD for an exclusive interview, around thirty thousand dollars today. When Nakashima tracked Ivor down to her apartment with Philippe, she initially denied that she was Tokyo Rose, stating that there were several women who announced a zero hour. Nakashima informed Ivor of the desperate press hunt for her and suggested if she participated in their interview, everyone else would stop looking. Plus, there was also 2000 US dollars to consider. Oh yeah, Ivor desperately needed the cash, so she agreed to the interview. This part was really Philippe's fault, as he also encouraged her to take part. Bad decision, Philippe. Ivor and Philippe met with Leon Brundage for an interview on September 1st. Ivor did not fit the image of Tokyo Rose that the reporters had conjured in their minds of the alluring temptress. Maybe they were expecting Mata Hari's bejeweled bra. Instead, Ivor was fairly short, wore practical pants, and had her hair in pigtails because, you know, Tokyo was still smouldering and bejeweled bras only work as protection from bullets in video games, which hadn't been invented yet. Brundage and Lee were pati- weren't particularly concerned if Ivor was really a Tokyo Rose. Journalistic integrity right there. In Ivor's account of their meeting, they said, quote, She will do. We aim to get a story. We might as well start getting one now. Unquote. Ivor agreed to be interviewed by Lee and Brundage, and in what was one of the worst decisions in this story... Which is saying a lot, as there have been a few. Ivor signed a contract with Brundage's magazine, Cosmopolitan, which was in the days before it became famous for hot sex tips for women. Um... Then again, I've never tried being charged with treason to spice things up in the bedroom, so maybe it works. (laughs) Ivor signed a contract saying she was the one and only Tokyo Rose, which was blatantly untrue, but she was thinking that she was going to be interviewed at some point, and so it might as well be an interview she gets some money out of. I mean, that's very valid. You've got to remember here, too, that she and Philippe Mm. want to get back to America, but they need money for the passage. And, I mean, also, post-war Japan is not a great place to be, what with all the poverty and nuclear radiation. So if I was there and someone offered me the equivalent of six months' wages to say a few lies, I'd be pretty tempted. This is why I don't let you go anywhere alone. Rude. Lee interviewed Ivor over four hours and took 17 pages of notes. Two days later, he published a brief version in the story in the LA Examiner with the headline, Traitors Pay. So Lee turned out to be as scrupulous as I expected him to be. Pretty much. I mean, he did actually semi-attempt to kill General Hideki. Hideki? Tojo, sorry, Japan, to fit with a headline that Lee had prematurely sent about Tojo's death by suicide. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to back up there just for a hot minute and explain. No, no, we'll continue. Okay, so Lee was with journalists who were trying to interview Tojo. Journalists heard a gun go off. Lee rushed in and found Tojo shot. He ran off to send a telegram, Lee, not Tojo, because he's been shot, uh, about his death to his newspaper back in the US. And then he returned and realised Tojo was not dead, which kind of ruined his whole scoop. 
So he turned Tojo over to try and make sure he died so the headline was still true. So while Lee was able to file his story, Brundage was less successful and received a telegram from Cosmopolitan asking why he'd offered Ivor $2,000 and they refused to pay out or even publish the story on a so-called traitor. This was humiliating for him, poor guy, especially because the other journalists found out and laughed at him. Ivor, encouraged by two American GI journalists, held a press conference for Allied reporters on September the 4th. The question started out innocuous, but an Australian reporter soon asked Ivor if she'd ever told Australian soldiers that US servicemen stationed in Australia were sleeping with their wives. They were. This was a popular propaganda claim at the time, reflecting tensions arising from the mass American army presence in Australia during the war, something we'll discuss in another episode, but yeah, they were banging their wives. Yeah, like, look, okay, so we'll we'll discuss it more in another episode, but you've got a larrikin, dodgy Australian guy, and then you've got an American turning up with flowers, chocolates, and silk pantyhose. Pantyhose! Who are you going to go with? Pantyhose! Who are you going to go with? Ghostbusters! (laughs) Ivor was apparently shocked at the question and denied ever saying anything of the sort. The journalists, like Liam Brundage earlier, were taken aback by her appearance, which again did not fit the image of the exotic seductress that was associated with the mythical Tokyo Rose. So moral of the story is, always wear your bejeweled bra to press conferences, maybe? The Australian reporter asked Ivor to read a statement he had heard on air to verify her voice as Tokyo Rose. When she read the phrase, the reporter was unconvinced that she was the woman. After the interview, the journalists had Ivor pose for a photo behind a table with a microphone on it, like she was broadcasting for Zero Hour. The photo would later be presented by the media as a wartime photo of Ivor rather than a post-war reconstruction. Once the press conference had wrapped up, Ivor and Philippe were taken to the temporary offices of the US Army for questioning and held overnight. So on September 5th, 1945, which is about a month after the war ended, Ivor was questioned about her involvement in Radio Tokyo. Some people have claimed that Brundage dobbed Ivor in to US counterintelligence to get out of paying her the promised fee, but US intelligence could not be seen to do nothing, so at this point their aim was to verify Ivor's identity and they were not overly concerned about investigating her for treason. Next in our series of bad decisions, Ivor agreed to participate in a news film on her activities during the war for army intelligence. Filming began in October, and during it, Ivor would often give away autographs as Tokyo Rose. I know I'm dumb, but this was a whole new level. Philippe was getting increasingly worried about her newfound prominence, but Ivor brushed it off as him being overly concerned. After filming, however, the massive crowds that surrounded her prompted her own worries. By mid-October in America, there was growing public outcry over Tokyo Rose. On October 17, Ivor was taken to Army Headquarters for questioning. She's still in Japan at this point, just to be clear. Uh, And she was detained in the brig, which apparently does not have to be on a ship, but can be on a US naval or marine space. So, fun fact there for you. Ivor was now officially questioned on her position at the radio and asked about her broadcasts. She insisted that she had never said anything remotely demoralising or propagandist, but her interrogators were sceptical because the fantasy of Tokyo Rose suggested she was an accomplished liar and perhaps even involved with Japanese intelligence. She was denied a lawyer and unable to contact her husband. Classic. American justice! After this arrest, the idea that there were multiple Tokyo Roses disappeared and the US press painted Iva as the only Rose. After this arrest, the idea that there were multiple Tokyo Roses disappeared, and the US press painted Ivor as the only Rose. Ivor was taken to Sugamo Prison in November, where Japanese war criminals were held, including Tojo himself. So Tojo didn't die when that reporter tried to make him? Uh, no, he did not. So, yay for not being a murderer! So, she was repeatedly denied legal representation, and was only able to see Philippe after three months' imprisonment. In a fun instance of hypocrisy, while Ivor was in prison without legal representation and without even knowing what she was charged with, the US occupying forces were teaching the Japanese how to be democratic and were congratulating themselves on dismantling the old authoritarian order of Japan. Self-awareness they do not have. Ivor spent a year in prison, spending her time studying Japanese and reading prayer books from home. One day she was taking a bath and saw several faces looking in through the window at her. Turns out these were US congressmen checking in on the American occupation of Japan. 
Apparently, when they heard the infamous Tokyo Rose was having a bath, they decided to have a look. So classy. Mm-hmm. Philippe tried to find... Yeah. Philippe tried to find a lawyer, but had trouble finding one versed in American law. Also, the prison authorities wouldn't permit lawyers in to interview either, which kind of made it difficult as well. The US Army and FBI joined forces to investigate whether Ivor could be charged with treason. In April 1946, investigators recommended that she be, be released, while the case was considered by the Justice Department in Washington. However, the Deputy Chief of Staff decided not to release her, as it could cause damaging publicity. Always more important than human rights, folks. We've already covered the speed of US bureaucracy in World War II, and it took five months for the investigation to be reviewed by the Justice Department. In September, it was decided that there was not enough conclusive evidence of their supposed treason. The Assistant Attorney General wrote that, quote, the identification of Tuguri as Tokyo Rose is erroneous, or at least that her activity consisted of nothing more than announcing of music selections, end quote. Uh, erroneous? Yeah, erroneous. On October 25th, 1946, a year after she was imprisoned, Iva was released. Iva and Philippe again tried to return to America because Iva was pregnant and wanted to give birth on American soil. Well, presumably in a hospital bed, but, you know, not just in the dirt, but you know what I mean. If their kid's not born on US soil, they can't be president. Also, post-war Tokyo was basically a post-apocalyptic wasteland. When Iva got out of prison, she could barely recognise it. There was scarcely any food and what was available was expensive. There were American GIs everywhere, the streets were filled with sex workers, people were housed in slums, and there were gangs roaming the streets. Iva understandably wanted to get the hell out, but Philippe wanted her to lay low for a while so they could go back to America without any fuss. But shockingly, Iva was stubborn and felt that she had been exonerated, so she was determined to return to her home country. Also, remember that pesky citizenship issue that's come up a few times before? Well, it became an issue again. She had no documents to prove that she was an American citizen. While in prison, she'd been treated as a Japanese citizen. The FBI told Iva she might have dual American and Portuguese citizenship after her marriage to Philippe. The American consul told her she was a stateless citizen. At this point, I'm beginning to think I might be an American citizen. No. Okay. By this point, however, Iva had already been found guilty in the minds of many Americans, and there was widespread outrage that a so-called traitor would be allowed to return to the US. Only a year after the war, anti-Japanese prejudice was still widely prevalent, and some big figures, including popular radio commentator Walter Winchell, who later supported Senator Joseph McCarthy, started a campaign to force the US government to reinvestigate Iva's wartime broadcasts. The noise worked, and the Justice Department decided to reopen Iva's case in 1948. It was a very delicate political situation in America at this point. 1948 was an election year, so President Harry Truman was in the middle of a re-election campaign. As anti-communist sentiment grew, Truman was already being accused of being soft on traitors. He simply could not afford to be seen as weak on the issue. The new investigation requested all the evidence and material from the FBI's original investigation, including zero-hour recordings, at least ones that weren't destroyed after the initial investigation closed, uh, as well as FBI interviews with US veterans who had served in the South Pacific and who could have heard Ivor's broadcasts. The Justice Department then put out a call for more interviewees who had heard the radio show and could identify the voice of Tokyo Rose. But, like, I mean, I couldn't identify your voice if I hadn't heard it for three years. And you talk a lot. Like, my dad calls you the tall one who talks all the time. Wow. So, wow. 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 Sorry, not sorry. Anyway, wow. the added um, wow. no. complication. Wow. wow. <laughs> okay. The added complication here is, remember... There were multiple English-speaking women broadcasting Japanese radio propaganda and none of the GIs brought as witnesses could even tell the difference between their voices. The Justice Department also sent a representative of the Attorney General to Japan alongside Brundage, the journalist who had tracked her down in the first place, to find other potential witnesses for the Tokyo Rose trial. First, they went to Iva herself to make her sign her so-called confession, which is really the notes from the interview three years ago. They didn't inform her of her rights, or of the implications of signing. Iva was exhausted, she had given birth to a son two months before who had died a few hours later, and all she wanted to do was just get home to America. Brundage and the agent told her that if she signed the confession, she would be allowed to go home. She signed. 
In August 1948, two years after she was first released from prison in Japan, the US Justice Department put the matter before a grand jury. What's the difference between a normal jury and a grand jury? Is one bigger and fancier? True crime aficionado here. The grand jury decides if charges should be brought against a suspect, while a normal jury determines guilt in a criminal trial. So a grand jury basically judges the prosecutor's charges. Yeah, and set the more you know give here. The grand jury was sceptical that there was a case for treason charges, and the special assistant attorney general arguing the case had to pull out the big guns to convince them to indict Ivor. The attorney did manage to convince the grand jury eventually, and Ivor was brought from Japan to the US on September 25, 1948. Philippe did not get to see her off. She had been held in prison before her departure, and he wasn't told the date she would leave. He found out that she was gone by reading the newspaper the day after she left. Bloody brutal. So her plan to get back to America worked. I mean, like, technically, yes. But she was immediately taken into custody by the FBI and charged with eight counts of treason for, quote, adhering to and giving aid and comfort to the Imperial Government of Japan during World War II. So, I mean, if this was her endgame, she had some strange priorities. Ivor's trial began on the 5th of July, 1949, and it absolutely kills me that it didn't start a day earlier like can you imagine trial for treason against the u.s starting on the 4th of july which also happens to be her birthday the drama of it all the pizzazz the showmanship trials are supposed to be serious affairs yeah but i i know but i did legal studies in high school i own chicago on dvd i know what i'm talking about so with a bit less razzle dazzle than they could have had the trial was held at the Federal District Court in San Francisco, where Ivor was accused of eight overt acts of treason. For the time, it was the longest and most expensive trial ever held in America, costing the US government over half a million dollars, which seems extraordinary to me. Like, what about all the mob bosses from the 30s? You gotta stop watching Chicago, man. Never. Ivor had a team of attorneys led by Wayne Mortimer Collins, a lawyer who specialised in defending the rights of Japanese Americans who had been evacuated or interned during World War II, like Ivor's parents. This is also the first time she actually had a lawyer throughout all this too. Collins had been key in the constitutional challenge against the internment of Japanese Americans, and he had been involved in helping close internment camps. He also voluntarily advised internees who had been forced to renounce their American citizenship of their rights, and he then spent 23 years fighting to get people their citizenship back and allow them to stay in the US. A good guy. San Francisco was chosen as the place for the trial deliberately, with the city having a long history of anti-Japanese racism. The US government also made sure that it was an all-white jury. During the trial, the prosecution flew 19 witnesses from Japan to testify against Ivor. Though the war was over, many of these witnesses were still considered enemy aliens, but they were allowed to freely travel through the US until they were required at the trial. On the other hand, former Allied soldiers who were willing to journey from Australia to the US to testify on Ivor's behalf for her defence were harassed and detained for questioning as soon as they entered the country. Philippe also came to act as a witness for Ivor. The government refused to subpoena witnesses for the defence, which meant Ivor had to foot the bill. Witnesses on either side were crucial, as the prosecution didn't actually have any transcripts or recordings that showed Ivor's supposed treasonous statements. You know, I'm sending this trial may not have been the fairest. That's funny, that. That seems to be a theme in our episodes. You weren't far off in comparing the trial to Chicago, because it was certainly a public spectacle. People would line up from early in the morning to try and get a seat in the public viewing area of the courtroom, and on some days up to 60 people will be chilling outside hoping to Give nab a spot. Them the old razzle-dazzle, razzle-dazzle on. Uh, The prosecution's case took nearly a month and a half to put forward. They called on 46 witnesses, logged nearly half a million words of testimony, and played excerpts from six Radio Tokyo broadcasts. There were two key witnesses, Kenkichi Oki and George Mitsushio, who gave the most evidence. Oki and Mitsushio were both born in the US but ended up in Japan. They were employed by the Overseas Bureau at Radio Tokyo during the war and had been in charge of Zero Hour. These two witnesses were the cornerstone of the prosecution's case, providing the eyewitness testimony of treason that was crucial to a conviction. On August 13th, the defence began their case, focusing on the definition of treason that a defendant not only had to commit the act, they had to intend to betray their country in doing so. 
Cousins and the two other American prisoners of war who had worked with Ivor on Zero Hour, Norman Reyes and Wallace Ince, were in, in say Ince, 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 Ince. Ince. I say we're, I don't know. We're important witnesses for the defence, for they could speak to Ivor's involvement with the show, but they had to walk a fine line to not be charged with treason themselves. Ivor herself took to the stand at 2.15pm on September 7th. She, would, she was convinced that if she told the truth, the truth would win. So she was adamant that she had actively avoided cooperating with the Japanese army wherever possible. She spent four days on the witness stand while Collins interviewed her for the defence, and then another four days being cross-examined by the prosecution. The jury had trouble deciding on a verdict, but the judge refused to allow a hung jury. They had to decide two things. One, was Ivor an American citizen? And two, if she was, was she guilty of treason by aiding an enemy of the US? Eventually, on September 29th, a year after Ivor had been brought back to the US, the jury found her guilty on only one count of treason, quote, that on a day during October 1944, the exact date being to the grand jurors unknown, said defendant at Tokyo, Japan, in a broadcasting studio of the Broadcasting Corporation of Japan, did speak into a microphone concerning the loss of ships, unquote. Which is judicial speak for, she made a comment on air about US naval losses. Spectators were shocked. They had expected acquittal. Some in the courtroom wept at the verdict. For one count, for her one count of treason, Ivor was sentenced to ten years in prison and fined ten thousand dollars. She became the seventh person convicted of treason in the U.S. And in a final cruel twist of fate, her conviction meant that Ivor would lose her American citizenship that she'd fought so hard for. She'd been convicted because the jury decided that after all the confusion, she was indeed an American citizen. But that affirmation was what ultimately cost her her longed-for U.S. citizenship. It's, it, it's just wild. It's so sad. Ivor's trial. It's like, I just feel so sorry for her. So Ivor's trial was also the last trial in America for treason in World War II. Her father and sister saw her off to jail, but Philippe was not there. He'd already been forced to head back to Japan after his visa expired. And sadly, he and Ivor would never see each other again. Ivor served just over six years of her sentence at the Federal Reformatory for Women in West Virginia, Mountain Mama, and was released on parole on the 28th of January, 1956. When Ivor was released, the press immediately revived the Tokyo Rose legend. Let the women li- let the woman live! The newspaper coverage of her release reported on wartime radio siren Tokyo Rose, not on Ivor Togori Diakino. One headline read, Tokyo Rose quits jail, shows no repentance. She couldn't catch a break, could she? That's like the understatement of the story. Since she'd lost her US citizenship as a result of her conviction, she was now a stateless person, and the immigration department planned to deport her as an enemy alien. Like, this citizenship issue is like a bad rash. Every time she thought she was free of it, it came back to bite her again. She fought the deportation, but... By this point, she was bloody furious, and I don't blame her. I'd probably be burning the White House down and then back in jail for treason again. Like, it took two fucking years for the matter to be settled. Collins, her attorney, fought the entire time. Finally, after a Supreme Court decision in 1958, it was decided that she hadn't actually lost her citizenship at the time of her conviction and thus couldn't be deported. But she was still a stateless person somehow. Like, someone who knows citizenship law, explain this to me because my brain cannot compute this idiocy. Bureaucracies are dumb and people are racist. Yeah, look, look, that, that, that does explain it, really. Between 1968 and 1972, Ivor was forced to pay the fine from her conviction that she hadn't been able to afford previously. From the public, she would get letters accusing her of being a treacherous Jap or accusing her of causing the death of a brother, husband, son, etc. during the war. Japanese Americans were also hostile towards her for sullying their reputation for good behaviour. Finally, in the 1970s, things changed a bit for the better. So due to issues like Watergate, the American public had lost a lot of their trust in the government and no longer believed their government would not lie to them. Fuck off. In 1975, the Japanese American Citizens League started a campaign for a presidential pardon for Ivor. The post-war anti-Japanese sentiment had died down and the petition managed to generate a lot of support in the wider community. I wonder if, like, the response to the Korean and Vietnam wars also, like, changed how they felt towards, like, Asian citizens as a whole. That would make sense. I mean, like, you've got 
a lot of protest against the Vietnam War in this era. So, but also a lot of Vietnamese immigrants coming in as well. Or am I like applying yeah. the Australian experience? I, I, there was a lot of Vietnamese immigrants to Australia. I have no idea about America. Maybe, but like oh, Australia is okay. closer, so that makes sense. We are, know. we are closer. Still very I'm an Australian racist. historian, right. not an American historian. In March 1976, the Chicago Tribune published interviews with the two key prosecution witnesses, Kinkishi Oki and George Mitsushio. These revealed that they had been coached by the government and the FBI on what to say during the trial. Truly a great example of American justice. On January 19, the day before he left office, President Gerald Ford Loser. signed a presidential pardon for Ivor. She could... She could... <laughs> She could reclaim her rights as a full citizen. Yay! Woo! In 2006, Ivor was awarded the Edward J. Hurley Citizenship Award by the World War II Veterans Committee for, quote, her indomitable spirit, love of country, and the example of courage she has given her fellow Americans, unquote. She died later that year. So I guess in the end there was, like, a bit of recognition for her patriotism and love of her country. I always expect people to stand up for what is right, even when it's difficult. So honestly, no. I like the later life respect and acknowledgement and apology, but this reminds me weirdly of the Peter Norman incident here in Australia. In his case, post-death acceptance just isn't good enough. Be brave and do the right thing at the right time. Don't just say you wish you had and regret it. That's, like, that's, that's good. I like that. And she did try. Like, I think that's the thing that comes to me is, like she tried her best she she never like she she refused to give up her citizenship whether it existed or not you know unrelated um and she kept trying you know yeah so like that's all for this episode we hope you enjoyed it and i think we might finish with Ivor's own words of her experiences during the war so in a letter to walter winchell the uh newspaper man in 1948 Ivor tried to set the record straight she wrote quote there were so many complicated cobwebs during the war years. I was one who had to find a way to survive the war. I was one with United States citizenship in a foreign country and was one who was under close surveillance by the civilian and military police and although being cornered, managed to come out alive. I was in a similar position as the prisoners of war and had little chance in choosing a way to survive. Unquote. Wow. All right, thanks for listening. See you next yeah. time. See you next time.